0: Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we are discussing the music of Poor Things, which premiered earlier this year at the Venice International Film Festival, where it won the Golden Lion. Joining us today is Jerskin Fendricks to discuss his first ever film score. This is another fantastic interview conducted by our now regular guest host, music journalist John Burlingame, who's been covering music for film and television for publications including Variety, The New York Times, and now the Dolby Institute podcast. I'll let John take it from here. We're here today to talk with English composer Jerskin Fendricks about his music for Yorgos
1: Lanthimos' remarkable new film, Poor Things, which stars Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, and Mark Ruffalo. Welcome, Jerskin. Thank you for having me, John. Can we talk a little bit about your background, where you're from, and a little bit about your musical experience?
2: Yeah, I've not really talked about that yet. Um, I was raised in Shropshire, which is a very remote, rural farming county in England on the border of Wales, um, which I loved. And I spent you know, a great deal of my upbringing in and amongst nature, basically. Uh, my father was involved in the church, and we came from a generally religious and also academic household. So I spent a great deal of time listening to Protestant church music and, you know, being in choir and playing the organ, that sort of thing. And also was very interested in literature, theology, general academic, humanity sorts of things. And that was a lot of the basis of it. My father also really loved Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, which, you know, I think the the crossover there between, you know, being very into poetry and literature and also this kind of very emotionally driven, quite cathartic songwriting, um, it made a lot of sense to me and to him, obviously. Um, and I also just spend a lot of time on the internet. I was listening to like a bunch of stuff. I wasn't really, you know, there wasn't a huge deal of culture going on in Shropshire compared to, say, you know, kids who have been raised in London or city centres, basically. So there's also like a really, I think, eclectic and um, unbound uh, amount of music that came out of just looking at stuff online, as well as the more Uh, tangible stuff of being involved in church music. I learned piano and violin since I was reasonably young. So quite a mix of stuff, I think.
1: And if I recall correctly, um, you were involved with an experimental
2: opera not long ago. It feels like long ago. I worked um, at university. I was friends with a couple of people who directed some productions, and I wrote the music for some of them at university and then they were given the opportunity to direct something at the V&A Museum in London, and we decided to do an experimental opera based on Alfred Jarry's Ouboufois. Um Yeah, it was very intense. When you say opera, you think of something, but it was they, they had to slightly turn down the vibration sensors on the sculpture, sculptures to uh, accommodate how loud it was. It was very, yeah, it was intense. So, Poor Things is your first film score, is that right?
1: Yeah, that is true. So, how did you become involved with Poor Things?
2: Well, Yorgos was aware that I'd done this opera, although there's no trace of it that you can listen to online. Um, What he had listened to was an album of pop songs I released in 2020, uh, which is an album of pop songs. And he liked it, I think. And I think he. Somehow in his, you know, very, um, uh, you know, interesting way of viewing things in the world, thought that that could lead to a good film score. And it definitely led to a film score. Uh, but yeah, that, that was the basis in which he got in touch with me. So reasonably unexpected.
1: And it's kind of curious because I don't think Yorgos has used an original score in his earlier films. And I wonder why he, and perhaps he discussed this with you, why he felt that Poor Things needed an original score.
2: Yeah, I think it was actually quite a relief to me that the first director I'd worked with also hadn't worked with a composer before. So we were both very new to the experience. And it was like being, you know, young lovers. And we're both a bit like, you know, ooh, a bit furtive, a bit, you know, coy with each other. Uh, so that was probably helpful. And we, and we, uh, we, we both learned along the way how to make a film score from scratch um i'm not sure aesthetically poor things is such a big departure from his previous films i think you could argue that the cosmetics of his earlier films as abstract and weird as they are are very visually grounded in some form of reality whereas this one's such a departure from any yeah aesthetic objectivity that that I mean, the first thing we agreed on is that the, fil- the music had to be part of the film exclusively. No external references, no temp scores. We never discussed any other composers or films or anything at all. It was So I think Yorgos really had this idea that the film, everything sprouts ex nihilo from the genesis of the film and from nowhere else. <laughs>
1: when people ask you to describe poor things and what it's about i because it's the picture itself is so out there in so many ways what do you tell them how do you how do you describe poor things to someone who doesn't know anything about the movie
2: yeah god it's it's a really hard one i mean firstly i've always really really hated spoilers so often you, you try and you you have to try and describe the film and, like, the premise is a spoiler, sort of, even though it's, like, revealed in the first 10 minutes. Um, it's, 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 it's a really... It's also just very difficult to describe. I think when I try and describe it, what does get conveyed is how emotionally I feel about the film and how I really, you know, I, me and I know the rest of the team are just, like, extraordinarily proud of what it is. And as much as I struggle for words, you know, I have a great sense of endearment towards the film. In terms of how you describe it to someone else, oh, I mean, it feels kind of, do you want to give it a go?
1: I suppose anyone watching this is probably going to have already seen the film anyway. So, you know, perhaps it's best to simply say, you know, it's part science fiction. It's part black comedy. It's part social commentary. And therefore, I think one of the most provocative films of the year
2: that's good that's no, concise it actually covers what it's about i mean i think my my synopsis is more to do with you know how uh yeah how a dead pregnant lady gets cut open and becomes her own daughter and then goes on a sex tour of europe which is <laughs> th- this this might be the more uh the the the, the english tagline rather yeah <laughs> uh,
1: thank you for that you know here's, here's my my question for you is when did Yorgo's call you and were you on board early enough uh, to sort of begin feeding him musical ideas possibly even
2: before shooting Yeah possibly we we um we started talking about 6 months before principal photography and I'd say 95% of the score was fully written before the cameras started rolling and I think this was very helpful for Yorgos, probably, and he also really wanted the on-set environment to be very immersive, not only for himself, but for the actors and everyone else working creatively on it. So I think during filming, they were piping some of the score through speakers between takes to create this sense of immersion, as well as how you know all the sets are completely immersive as well. Um, yeah. I th- I think it was a helpful thing to start early and not to be influenced by function that, oh, you, you need a two minute piece of music here that, you know, increases intention or demonstrates this. I basically got the opportunity to write a huge amount of music based solely on how I emotionally felt about the characters or the, the places or the experiences. And I wasn't really tied to anything that was um temporally prescriptive. I just got to, go-on instinct, which I think resulted in probably better stuff. So what were you working from?
1: A script and whatever Yorgos told you?
2: Yeah, script. And I had the production designs. I had all the like the set designs, concept art, costume designs, like most of the aesthetic stuff, which was really, I read the script first and I'd seen Yorgos's previous films. So I was like, oh, you know, this is a you know phenomenal script. I love these characters and I feel so warmly that it's going to be a sort of period piece. And then you look at the artwork and it's like, oh, right, this is, you know, th- th- this is way off center. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be whipping out the Broadwood piano at any point for this. Um, so yeah, that it was a great combination though, like having, having a source of inspiration for the, the really intense emotionality of the characters. And then also a source for like how I might think about it from a more, cosmetic point of view, texturally, orchestration wise. And that's kind of what I needed. There's so much in it.
1: Can you talk about your overall approach, what your music needed to say or needed to accomplish within the film?
2: Yeah, I think music can do a lot of things. And there, there are quite a few things that musics can exclusively do. And in terms of Embellishing how gorgeous and ornate and, and, and Fabergé like the whole visual of the film was. That could have been possible, but I feel like, you know, it could have been a, I don't know, I just don't feel like it would, it would have been contributing much. I decided, I think, to really run with the emotional aspect of it. And there's something so, so interesting about a character who's basically experienced everything for the first time. Like, you know, sex and fear and love and and no one else realizes that this will be a literal. Like, you know, there's something very primarily shocking about any of these experiences for the first time. And so being able to see what it might feel like to see death for the first time or to feel warmly to a romantic partner for the first time and be and push this really superlatively without any risk of it being melodramatic or overplaying it. Um, Yeah, so yeah, I was really, I think I started out very, very much trying to contemplate what the emotions and the unusual context in which the emotions would have been being experienced.
1: So is most of your music about Bella? And her psychological and maybe emotional journey?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it's roughly through that prism. And you could argue a lot of it is from a first-person point of view. But also there's something about the film that makes you kind of see things from her point of view. Like one question might be like, is the world actually normal? And that's just how Bella sees it. there are certain things I really liked about Bella's approach which I wanted to amp up lack of embarrassment and I get embarrassed quite easily but musically I feel like I don't really get embarrassed I'm you know I'm very happy to write music that embarrasses me um so having not just in terms of the actual compositions but the way they're recorded and the way they're mixed and presented stuff that's very stark and stuff that actually if it was If it was made to sound a bit nicer, it might actually be a really pleasant piece of music. But the fact that it's, you know, so unadorned and so centered and so kind of like in your ear really makes it provocative in what it forces you to feel. And I think, yeah, just these are the warps of perception kind of match up to how Bella feels and also how Bella makes other people feel.
1: Can you talk about the sounds that we're hearing in the score? Uh, I remember hearing it for the first time in the context of the picture and thinking, what is that instrument? I'm not sure I know what that is. What did you use and then how did you alter or change it to fit Bella's experience?
2: Well, one of the first things I decided was even in the really quite heavily orchestrated larger pieces of music, I wanted to record every single instrument totally separately um, and that allowed me to have very solid control over the exact sound of every single instrument and there was a lot of stuff I wanted to play with in terms of warping the pitch and the formant and, and other elements in terms of yeah bending in certain directions or gutting certain parts of the frequency that yeah allow you to feel like oh that seems kind of familiar this feels sort of like what i know but there's something behind it that makes you kind of there's something uneasy even if you can't put your finger on it and that's sort of you know similar to bella you can you know see all these people interacting with her and everyone kind of falls in love with her in their own way but like throughout the whole thing they've all got this sense that there's something really off even if they can't exactly locate it I wanted to basically have the surgical control over making instruments not unpleasant sounding like almost like warm and nice but then you know twist something you know yeah for that end orchestration wise i was really interested in breath i was really interested in wind instruments um i was really interested in the dichotomy between wind that's made through a you know from a person uh, like a flute, breath, life, and then instruments, wind instruments that have breath made for them that are animated, like a pipe organ, for example, or an accordion or a bagpipe. And then the interesting results that happen when you start to try and get mechanized, animated, let's call them wind instruments, you try and get them to speak and, and bend in a, in a human vocal way. And it gives this really eerie sense of something that's been granted life that shouldn't have been. And again, somatically, I'm sure that all plays in.
1: It's absolutely fascinating to me because it's an interesting sort of intellectual approach to the content And and I think it in a way it sort of deepens the experience if you think about this at all. And and I'm guessing, of course, that was sort of part of your plan.
2: Uh, I mean, you know, I'd be very happy if no one thought about it at all. I really don't. I don't know. I I I I I come from. I've seen a lot of art, let's say, that I think tries to justify itself on these theoretical grounds and. I I think most of it is uh just like such a a waste of a life and um <laughs> so you know I mean it's it's it happens to be the way I know how to do stuff I I really like research I really like thinking about stuff and that basically gives me the energy and the nutrition necessary for creating something but but I like I really find it um paramount that the emotion of the music speaks for itself, and I, I don't want to ever create a piece of music that you that you couldn't listen to without context and still somehow be moved by it. So you
1: mentioned uh, wood woodwinds, you know, which are are played with the hum- with human breath and and pipe organ and mechanically driven instruments. Am I right in saying that there's also strings and harp um, and perhaps some other instruments in the score?
2: Yeah, strings are there, and I think. One of the nice functions about using violins especially is that the detail you can get from them and trying to represent how Bella evolved from uh something basically that's a toddler to something unusually advanced, never normal at any point. And you can there's so much you can play with something that's kind of out of tune and simplified and a bit rough to something where it's elegant but in an unusual way um and then trying to add a lot of processing onto the violins throughout that that i think that if you want to like trace the lineage of the film with as little information as possible if you just look at how each violin was affected through the different parts of the film you can kind of get a sense of like thematically how that was augmented Voices played a, a big part in it as well for similar reasons to the winds, and then, yeah, really trying to digitally alter the voices. Then, what you have in a big way is there's there's a couple of ruptures where I did want to move away from something that actually was at all pleasant or familiar, and basically the two times in the film where Bella really like that something viscerally bad doesn't happen to her, but she realizes something viscerally awful. Firstly, in Alexandria, where she sees human suffering for the first time, and then more, I think even more cuttingly towards the end of the film where she basically finds out why she killed herself and she's faced with it again. And I wanted something that was like just so far removed from any melody, counterpoint, anything. I just want, I just wanted the sound of, you know, it it needed to get across the severity of that information. Like what, what would it feel like sonically to know this information that would cause you such, um, yeah such horror that you wanted to die so there were these occasional points where i really had to bring out something that was just you know horrifying
1: is that a kind of sort of a kind of screaming in a way
2: the screaming involved like in alexandria there's a lot of you know we have a lot of pipes um we have some um indian shenhai i think involved um at the higher end and a lot of pitched up stuff to really scream and then at the bottom we have this kind of sobbing in the bass which is actually a, a standard western oboe which we pitched down by like 20 octaves but given this kind of like throbbing That was like you know sad but still musically dramatic. And then towards the end, we're basically playing with um, Ilum pipes, which are these Irish bagpipes, which have a lot of very interesting characteristics. And I don't want to go into too much detail as to what we did to them, but we did something <laughs> to them that that I think really sonically gets the point across. Let's say. What was the process with your
1: ghost like? since so much of this was written before shooting, were you two in regular contact? Would you come up with some stuff and run it by him? Or did he come over to your studio? How did all that work?
2: Yeah, I mean, Yorgos has got a very, um, he's got a very trusting way of directing. And I think basically as soon as you and he realize that you're you're on the same page and you roughly know where the train is going, uh, he will give you, pretty much absolute freedom. He will never be looking over your shoulder. He won't really ever say like, oh, that's a nice melody, but maybe, oh, let's have it a little bit higher up or a bit slower or on this synthesizer rather than a flute. It's like, if it's good, it's in the film, if he likes it. And that gives you a great deal of responsibility. It almost gives you a sort of semi-directorial agency. And it means you can't half-ass something knowing that he's going to come and try and help you mold it in position. There are a lot of cues where I thought it was a good idea, and he said, "Yeah, I agree." And then he put it in the film, and you know, it's too late. I can't change it. And um, so, but but I think it 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 seems counterintuitive, but it actually really forces you to not ever come up with something half arsed You really have to make sure. Yeah, it's. I think it's a really great way of working. Throughout the initial process as well, the first few weeks, I was kind of sending stuff, and we were meeting up and discussing it. And I was trying to work out how far was too far because I knew he was an unusual director. And I didn't know if I was a more unusual musician than he was a director. And so I was thinking like, oh, you know, this noise, this melody, this whole thing is, you know, that's, he's not possibly going to put that into a searchlight picture. And then he did for all of them. (laughs) So (laughs) I was, I I don't don't think I was, yeah. The, The foot never came down. Maybe I could have gone further. Who knows? And that's
1: pretty extraordinary. I mean, it's a level of trust in a composer uh, that I think you don't often see, frankly, in this business.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a risky one. But there's, there's some, I think there's something, there's a lot, the way Yorgos works is arguably very mischievous. I think if you just look at his casting choices or his choices of books he wants to adapt or, art he wants to use there's there's something about it which feels like he's kind of daring in some way and i think it was kind of mischievous and daring to choose a 100 percent inexperienced film composer i think it was then even more mischievous to decide to give them total agency without you know to trust them to do that is you know i don't know i would have been too scared to do that but he wasn't thankfully
1: I love the idea that there's mischief aboard here. I think there should be more mischief in filmmaking, and there isn't nearly enough.
2: <laughs> Agreed, yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a film. It's like, you know, I, yeah, fun's important. Play. I think play is actually one of very serious... I think play is, is a thing so easily lost. I think play is really sacrosanct. Cherskin, is there a whole arc to the score?
1: Does it begin in one place and end in a different place?
2: Uh, sort of. I think mostly, yes. I don't know. I think if you think about yourself like 10 years in the past and you like to imagine, oh, that, you know, I'm a totally different person to that. You know, I'm so much better at cooking creme brulee now and, and I've okay. got a nicer shirt and you really don't and you don't you don't want to think about yourself from the but, but the time you know progression even if people totally progress it's not like an x equals y thing you kind of go up and down and revert and st- some stuff stays the same i think i tried to stay true to what a progression of a character would be which is you try and get rid of the stuff that needs to be gotten rid of but actually there's even towards the end when she's you know a medical and socio political genius by all counts i still wanted to have the cuteness there and the naivety and the the curiosity and the lack of embarrassment to wanting to find out more about the world so in some ways there's a lot of the beginning bella and the end bella musically and otherwise
1: is it true that you are actually in the movie that you were actually on the set at one point
2: yeah you ha- yeah you have to keep your eyes peeled there's a there's a solid 0.5 second cameo close-up but yeah you've got to time your toilet break well so you don't miss it and where is that in the movie Ooh, I let that be a surprise. It's in a musical <laughs> bit. It's in a musical bit. Otherwise, it would have been pointless. I'm not an actor. Are you playing an instrument? That's a great question, actually. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> oh, give us a hint. What are you doing? <laughs> There's an instrument, I guess, in a broad sense of the word. I don't know. I had some fun with the art department. We, uh, we came up with something good. It's fun. It's good. I love that scene. It's, that, that, that took five days to get right, and it was so worth it. I think you said earlier, correct me if I'm wrong, that 95%
1: of, of the score at, that's in the movie was actually written before shooting, that virtually everything was really put together in its final
2: form, even before he started shooting the film. Yeah, that's true. Um, it was great. I, I I started many months before principal photography started, and And I think it's, you know, once you're really hooked by something and moved by it, it's best to work as quickly as you can before you lose that initial thing that you are given by the art. And also, it meant that I was, you know, I didn't have any functional restriction. I didn't have to worry about, um, yeah, making a piece of music that had to hit certain points at certain points. I, I was free to really specifically concentrate on the theme and the feeling and the emotion, which has its own trajectory. And it it sometimes hurts that kind of music to kind of too quickly be strangled into a formic mold. So a lot of it was just, you know, coming up with more abstract compositions that I think Yorgos really responded to, most of them at least. And then there was a reasonably long editing process about a year afterwards when the film was being put together where, you know, some stuff had to be altered just to match how it was being used in the film but at the actual raw musical materials i think i was allowed to compose them in a very pure and unrestrained way which i think was really really helpful yeah so how long were you on the project all told a while but you're not working constantly there's bits where you have to do certain thing and then there's six months where they're sorting something else out and then you're brought back on to do this thing so i wasn't you know i mean it was all in all roughly two and a half years one might argue but it wasn't an endless two and a half years of work but it was a long period not a time to mature like a like a cheese <laughs> so now that you've
1: done one film score can we expect another one anytime soon
2: Oh I don't think I can be stopped now it's too much fun. <laughs> Well,
1: um, we're really glad that you were called to do this one. Um, It's an extraordinary accomplishment, and we are just thrilled to spend a few minutes with you talking about it today. So
2: thank you so much, Jerskin Fendrix. Absolutely. Thanks so much for chatting, John. It's been a pleasure.
0: Many thanks to Jerskin for joining us on the podcast today. And thanks again to John for yet another excellent interview. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Searchlight Pictures for helping us put together this conversation. Poor Things is now in theaters. You can find a link to tickets, as always, in our show notes. If you'd like even more conversations with inspiring artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube, in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs, you can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon.